Me and Diane have had the privilege, I guess, of knowing our guests now, I, I don't know, 10, maybe 15 years through the TCT network. Uh, I've done countless, countless interviews with him over TCT. I always loved it. Uh, and when he sat down and when he began to speak, I realized I needed to be somewhere else because I, I just... I just wasn't even in the same ballpark or league with the knowledge that he walks in. But this man is a real statesman. He's a man that is passionate about history. He's a passionate about our nation. But more than that, he's passionate about, passionate about God. He's an author. He speaks all over the nation in different settings. And we have the great privilege of having him with us here this morning. So would you give a great big welcome to William Fetter this morning as he comes to deliver the word of the Lord to us today. Welcome, Brother Fetter. So glad you're here. Are you on the air there? Making sure. There we go. God bless you. Well, I want you to know, Christ Church of the Heartland, how much I respect your pastor, Zach Strong, and his wife, Diane. And join me in thanking the Lord for such tremendous pastors right here. And um, I was remembering all the different times at TCT and Pastor Zach doing the Ask the Pastor and all the different programs they had, and uh, just a tremendous opportunity of getting the word out. And uh, so years ago, my wife and I uh, started collecting stories. Uh, I wrote a book in 1994, and it sold a half million copies. And so I started writing lots of books. So, <laughs> and usually it's my wife that has the idea for the books, and then I get to work on it. But one book we had is called Miracles in American History. And they're stories from our country's past where there's a crisis, they pray and have courage, and things turn around. And we have DVDs, and the uh, thought is that... The, uh, uh, the book of Acts talks about the early church. And is that the, the clicker? Yeah, and uh, how the, thank you, Chad. The early church took the gospel and began to spread it around the world, and it would make an impact. And you drop the pebble in the pond, the ripples go out. So if Christ is dropped into somebody's heart, it should impact their life and their marriage and their family and their church and their community and ultimately the government and ultimately the world. And so um, the big picture is that the most common form of government in world history is kings. So you have Cain, Kill, and Abel, and Nimrod, Tower of Babel, and then you have 2,000 years of Egyptian pharaohs, and Assyrian kings, and Babylonian kings, and Persian kings, and Alexander the Great, and Julius Caesar of the Roman Empire, and Attila the Hun, and Genghis Khan, and these kings keep getting bigger and bigger because with military advancements, kings can kill more people, and with technological advancements, <clears throat> they can track more people. Uh, until finally, the king of England became the biggest king on the planet. The sun never set on the British Empire. And you uh, had, he had India, Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, British Guyana, Canada, Barbados, Bermuda, Jamaica, right, and, and America. And so America's founders decided they didn't like a globalist king telling us what to do. And so they broke away and flipped it and made the people the king, right? So a republic is where the people are king ruling through representatives. And so when we pledge allegiance to the flag and to the republic, we're basically pledging allegiance to us being in charge of ourselves, right? And uh, <clears throat> so kings rule through fear. You do what they say or they kill you. 
uh, republics and democracies only work if the people have morals and virtue. And so it's a bottom-up form of government versus a top-down, right? I tell people it's the difference between a dead pyramid rolled top-down through fear and a living tree where every root and every capillary root sucks in nutrients to keep it alive. So we have a bottom-up form of government that they actually borrowed from the church. Um, you had the, um, uh, first, the first 400 years of Israel out of Egypt, you had millions of people and no king right before King Saul. And it worked because every citizen was taught the law and they were personally accountable to God to follow the law. So you're about to steal, nobody's around, then you think God's watching me, he wants me to be fair, he's gonna hold me accountable, maybe I should hesitate stealing, create something in your head called the conscience. And it worked for 400 years until the priest stopped teaching the law. They, you say, they did? Yeah, remember Eli, the high priest, his own sons are sleeping with women in the very tent where the Ark of the Covenant is. And then there's another Levite priest with a silver graven image in the house of a guy named Micah. And the tribe of Dan comes along and steals the graven image and says, hey, uh, you can be a priest to our whole tribe with this graven image. It's like, uh, isn't that one of the commandments? You're not supposed to have those, right? And then you have another Levite priest with a concubine. It's a terrible story. The law says the Levites to marry a virgin of his own tribe. Here he is with a woman he's not even married to. They're in a house surrounded by sodomites, and the poor girl's raped to death. And by the time you're grossed out, you read this line, everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. Why? Because the priest stopped teaching them what was right in the Lord's eyes. And it turns into this chaos, and they all go to Samuel the prophet, and they say this self-government system's no longer working. We want to be like all the other countries. We want a king. And Samuel cries, and the Lord tells him, they did not reject you, they rejected me. So the kings of England looked to the Bible for their authority, but they looked to the King Saul and on period. The Calvinist Puritans looked to the Bible for their authority, and they looked to the pre-King Saul period. So King Saul is the divider between Europe and America. right? The kings of Europe looked to the Bible, but we're the anointed king, divine right of the kings. The Calvinist Puritans that founded New England, they looked to the Bible, this pre-King Saul period of 400 years in Israel with no king, and everybody's taught the law and personally accountable to God to follow the law. And so, uh, so I have some stories of America breaking away from the most powerful king on planet Earth. And um, so with that, uh, <clears throat> you have um, the signing of the Declaration, and the Declaration does mention God four times, laws of nature and of nature's God, and uh, all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, uh, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions and with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. I'm going to take that apart. The um, appealing to the supreme judge of the world. So uh, the, the first uh, battle in America was the, in Maine. They had the pine tree battles. And you think, what was that? The British Navy had ships with masts that were made out of trees. Well, where do you get a 150-foot-high mass? Well, New England, uh, Massachusetts. And so the king would have an agent go onto your farm. And all those really nice trees, he would put his little hatchet mark on there and write in his little book and would walk away. And that tree belonged to the king, and you could never chop it down. And so in the early 1700s, a bunch of these guys uh, painted their face black with ashes and... Uh, had switches and they broke into the inn where the king's agent was and they like whipped him with their pine switches and um and then of course they got arrested um but it was um when the revolution starts george washington pays for six cruisers and he has the pine tree flag and it's a green pine tree 
referencing that pine tree, you know, rebellion. Um, and then above it, it says an appeal to heaven. And so he puts this flag on a six cruisers. And, um, and the idea of if you have a court case, you lose, you appeal it. If you lose it again, you appeal it to the Supreme Court. And in England, they would appeal to the king. But what if you don't get justice from the king? You go above the king's head. You appeal to heaven. And that's what the founders put in the declaration, that we're going above the king's head. We're appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intention. And then the interesting line is, all men are created equal. The king of England did not think all men were created equal. He thought he was created a little extra special. Right? Divine right of kings. God chose me to be the king, so I can do whatever I want. <laughs> and then it says, um, uh, right? So the divine right of kings is creator king people. Well, what we do is we sort of leave out the king. And we have the creator gives the rights to each one of us people, each person individually. And then we're all equal. We choose from amongst equals who's going to fix the potholes in the road and take care of the business. And so um, they sign the Declaration of Independence, and uh, they rush a copy of it out to George Washington, who is in New York with the Army. And um, Washington has the Declaration read to his troops, and then he says, The general hopes and trusts that every officer and man will endeavor to live and act as becomes a Christian soldier, defending the dearest rights and liberties of his country. And then we... Uh, have the Battle of Brooklyn Heights. So Washington's in New York, and the harbor starts to fill up with ships. And 400 British ships, 32,000 British troops. It's the most powerful invasion force ever assembled when you have all the gunpowder that's on all these cannons on all these ships. And all of a sudden, we realize we don't have really any Navy or any Army. It's just a bunch of ragtag guys. And we're, we're taking on the most powerful military force I mean, the British had India, Australia. I mean, they had this global empire. And, um, and so the Continental Congress has a day of fasting. And it says, we earnestly recommend the 17th of May, 1776, to be observed as a day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer, that we, you, with united hearts, confess and bewail our manifold sins and transgressions, and by a sincere repentance and amendment of life, appease God's righteous displeasure, and through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ obtain pardon and forgiveness. And so they rush a copy of this day of fasting out to George Washington. He has it read to his troops. And then Washington says, the Continental Congress, having ordered Friday the 17th instant to be observed as a day of fasting, humiliation, and prayer, humbly to supplicate the mercy of Almighty God, please him to pardon all our manifold sins and transgressions. The general commands all officers and soldiers to pay strict obedience to the orders of the Continental Congress by their unfeigned and pious observance of their religious duties they may incline the Lord and give her a victory to prosper our arms. So these were Christian men and women involved in the revolution. George Washington writes to his younger brother, John Augustine, we expect a very bloody summer of it at New York. We are not either in men or arms prepared for it. If our cause is just, as I do most religiously believe it to be, the same providence which has uh, uh, in many instances appeared for us, will still go on to afford us its aid. Now, that word providence is uh, the Webster's 1828 Dictionary, says the care and superintendence which God exercises over his creatures by divine providence is understood God himself. Right, so this is just another word that they would use. So the New York Harbor fills up with these British ships. 
Washington is the blue line, and they're dug in, facing the water, facing the ships. Well, there was a loyalist. Who's that? That's somebody that lives in America, but they're loyal to the enemy. Couldn't you imagine somebody living in America that's not patriotic to America? And hmm. Anyway, this loyalist shows the British where to land far away from where the Americans are, because they're the Redcoats, and they march all night long through Jamaica Pass, and they attack George Washington from behind on August 27th of 1776. It's the biggest battle of the entire Revolutionary War, and it's the entire American army. There's no second string, right? If it's over here, it's over. 3,000 Americans get killed. They're all getting shot from behind, whoa. And um, um, 3,000 Americans get killed, only 300 British. I mean, it's totally lopsided. And, um, and then uh, George Washington watches the 400 young men of the Maryland Regiment and they like just charge like right into the British lines and, and they get killed and then they regroup and they charge again six times until they're all killed. But it causes the British to have to pause and, and you know, regroup and it allows the Americans to find cover and Washington sees them dying in, in the distance and he says, good God, what brave fellows I have lost this day. So from that point on, the Maryland Regiment flag always got to go first. And um, well, now the sun goes down and Washington is trapped He's got the water on one side, and then he's got these eight, ten thousand British troops that came from behind, and he probably has thoughts going through his head that you know, the next day uh, the British will capture him and he'll be killed, and we'll be another British colony like India or Australia or New Zealand or something, right? And um, but instead, Washington gets every boat he can find and begins to ferry his troops across the East River to Manhattan Island. And they're doing it in the pitch black. They're trying to do quiet. They're, they're moving cannons. They're moving horses. And I mean, it's just, just crazy all in the dark. And um, then the sun starts to come up. And they only moved half the army. Now he's really in a bad place because there's not enough soldiers left to fight. And the ones strung out over the water, I mean, they could get some cannonballs and that's over. And um, so Washington's chief of intelligence, Major Ben Talmadge, writes, as the dawn of the next day approached, those of us who remained in the trenches became very anxious for our own safety. And when the dawn appeared, there were several regiments still on duty. At this time, a very dense fog began to rise off the river and began to settle in a peculiar manner over both encampments. I recollect this peculiar providential occurrence perfectly well. And so very dense was the atmosphere that I could scarcely discern a man at six yards distance. We tarried until the sun had risen, but the fog remained as dense as ever. So they keep moving the troops, moving the troops, moving the troops all the way till noon. And Washington's on the last boat that leaves. The fog lifts, the British charge, and no one's there. Right? It was the last chance the British had to capture the entire American army. Right? And they missed it. And, and so um, Washington says the hand of providence has been so conspicuous in the course of the war that he must be worse than an infidel that lacks faith. But it will be time enough for me to turn preacher when my present appointment ceases. All right? And so here we're getting close to the 4th of July, just uh, a week or so. And, uh, and you know we have all the celebrations. But these were men and women of faith that uh, fought. And so um, another one is the Battle of Saratoga. So after New York, they, they 
British take New York, and they're going to come up the Hudson River toward Albany, Albany. And then there's other British, General Johnny Burgoyne, that land in Canada, and they're going to come down the Hudson River Valley, and they're going to meet at Albany and do this pincer movement, and that'll cut America in half with half of New York and all the New England colonies on one side and the Middle Southern colonies on the other. And um, unbeknownst to uh, the Johnny, General Johnny Burgoyne coming from Canada, the general that took New York got jealous, and he didn't want the other general to win and get the glory for the battle. So he doesn't come up the, the Hudson River Rail. He goes and tries to capture uh, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. And that's the Valley Forge story. And, um, but anyway, so this British um, general that's coming down from Canada, uh, Burgoyne, he meets with the Mohawk Indians. And he promises them money for scalps. And so he would send them ahead of the British Army to terrorize and scalp the Americans. And um, so uh, the, the Indians, there's stories where 30 guys would go out at nighttime to do reconnaissance and only three would come back because all of them would be killed because the Indians knew how to fight in the dark and everything. And so you have another loyalist and his name is David Jones and he's engaged to a girl named Jane McCrae and they're in a frontier settlement called Fort Edward, New York. And he kisses his fiancée goodbye and says, I'm going to go join this British general, Johnny Burgoyne. We'll drive these rebel Americans out. We'll get married and have a great life. And so as the British are getting closer and closer, and the Indians are in front of the army scalping and scalping, um, one night the Indians come in uh, from their raids and they would put the scalps on the sticks and they'd do their scalp dances. And, uh, and this David Jones uh, sees this one scalp that's nice, long, pretty hair that he recognizes as his fiancee, Jane McRae. The Indians couldn't tell who's a loyalist and who's American. All sort of looked the same to him, right? And so um, sure enough, the Indians had captured uh, this Fort Edward, and they scalped her and killed her. And, um, and so the uh, British soldiers and David Jones go to their General Burgoyne and said, what were you thinking? And so Burgoyne has to meet with the Indians and tell them to tone it down. Now, the Indians don't know tone it down. They know on and off. <laughs> they're at war. They're at peace. They don't know any, like, in-between you know, like we would tell our soldiers in Afghanistan, you know, don't shoot at the, the Islamic terrorists when they're walking across the street. Wait till they get all set up again and shoot at you. Then you shoot at them. And so we sort of tied our guys' hands. Not so with the Indians, right? If it's war, it's total war. And so, um, so the Indians leave. And now you have a British army in the middle of the New York forest, and they don't know where they're at. The Indians had been their eyes and ears, their reconnaissance. And so the Americans get the advantage, and we surround them and capture them at the Battle of Saratoga. 6,000 British soldiers surrender. I mean, that would be a big deal today if 6,000 soldiers somewhere in the world surrendered. And um, the painting of this surrender hangs in our U.S. Capitol Rotunda in Washington, D.C. And word of it ricochets around the world, and Ben Franklin is over in Paris, and he goes into the king's court 
And he says, Americans just captured 6,000 of the British. And the king of France is like, well, you know, I didn't want to get into another war with Britain because the last time I did the French and Indian War, I like lost everything west of the Appalachians. And so, um, but now the king's like, well, if you're going to win, maybe I'll think about getting involved. And that was strategic because once France got involved, the war changed from the British putting down a rebellion in their colonies to a global war with colonies in Indonesia and Jakarta and Japan. And, and so the British Navy now has to be stretched around the world and not just focus on us. So Washington, after the Battle of Saratoga, said, I most devoutly congratulate my country and every well-wisher to the cause on this signal stroke of providence. And so the Continental Congress is so happy, they have the first national day of Thanksgiving after the Declaration had been written. And they write, with one heart and one voice, join the penitent confession of their manifold sins that it may please God through the merits of Jesus Christ mercifully to forgive and blot them out. I just think in the, the very first day of Thanksgiving in America, it mentions through the merits of Jesus Christ and under the providence of Almighty God, secure for these United States the greatest of all human blessings, independence and peace. And um, then, so uh, these are miracles in American history. We're facing challenges today. We're facing challenges with the globalists today, right? But we have to remind ourselves that we were birthed out of people that were challenging the global authority of their day. And um, so the general that left New York, instead of coming up to Albany, that went and captured Philadelphia, the Americans had to flee Philadelphia and they had to go out at Valley Forge. And it was freezing, freezing winter and 2,500 of the men die and 500 of the women died. The women were called camp followers, but that term doesn't do them justice. They did everything. They like cooked and sewed the uniforms and took care of the sick soldiers and took care of the wounded soldiers and would scavenge for food. They would do all that stuff. And, um, and 500 women died at Valley Forge. And, um, and so the next, and there was even a general Mifflin who was in charge of getting supplies to Washington, but he was part of a cabal where there was a bunch of insiders that wanted to get rid of Washington and replace him with a different general. And so it looked like this Mifflin guy, right, he would get all the goods and store them in a warehouse. And instead of getting them to Washington, maybe he was like selling it, some of it on the side. And he like, you know, there was a lot of big investigations. And, but word gets to the governor, Patrick Henry in Virginia. And he writes a letter to Washington saying, I sent you a bunch of stuff. Did you get it? And Washington is like, no. And he's like, well, I sent it a long time ago. Why didn't you get it? And so it was Patrick Henry that starts doing some, you know, very upset letter writing and finds out that this Mifflin guy had, and so they get rid of him, put in somebody else, and then they finally get supplies to George Washington. And, uh, and so you always have to, you got the enemy, but then you have the enemy inside, right? You got some deep state people that try to undermine your efforts and, um, so Washington, after we, we make it through the winter of Valley Forge, he gives an order to the distinguished character of patriot. It should be our highest glory to laud the more distinguished character of Christian. And, uh, and then some Indians bring their youth to George Washington to be trained in American schools. And he says, you do well to wish to learn our arts and way of life and above all, the religion of Jesus Christ. And... Um, so another story is Benedict Arnold. 
Now, Benedict Arnold was the hero of the Battle of Saratoga. He had a temper, and he would, uh, you know, treat people that were under him with, you know, not very good. And so uh, he's um, at Saratoga, and he gets into an argument with the commanding officer. And the commanding officer says, you know what, I'm going to order you to sit out the battle. Now, you sit in your little tent while we go off and fight. And so he's like sitting in his tent. He goes, I, I can't. And so he, he takes a swig of whiskey and he gets on his horse and he disobeys the order and he rides toward the battle. And lo and behold, he looks and there's an open field and there's a what they call a redoubt, but it's a fortified British position where they're shooting at the Americans. And he says, he says they're not protected on the side. So he leaves, they charge, he captures the redoubt. He's wounded, but it allows us to win the battle. So Benedict Arnold comes away from the Battle of Saratoga as the hero. And so he is actually more popular than George Washington for this brief period. And so uh, he's wounded in his leg, and so they give him a job of the military governor of Philadelphia. And uh, he goes to the parties, and all the people see him, and there's a girl that likes him, and her name is Peggy Shippen. And her dad is a wealthy merchant who does business with the British, and he's a closet loyalist. And, uh, but she likes Benedict Arnold, and they end up getting married. And she's used to living in nice houses, and so Benedict Arnold like, buys this big house that he can't afford. But he's in charge of collecting all the stuff for the army, and he's got it in a warehouse, and he's accused of selling some of it on the side for a profit. And so he has to go through a trial, and it gets dragged on and on and on. And he comes out uh, okay, but during this time, his wife, Peggy Shippen, uh, keeps uh, nagging him and says, you know, these Americans don't appreciate you. You're such a great general. If you were in the British Army, they would take care of you. They would know what a great guy you are. And she works on him for a year. And finally, he agrees to cave. Uh, right? So this is somebody on the American side that is basically sells out to the enemy. I know it's hard for us to imagine this type of thing. And, um, and so, uh, so he's transferred, and he's made the commander of West Point. Now, uh, and he meets with this British spy, John Andre. Now, West Point is on the Hudson River, right? It's a point in the river that sort of juts out, and you can't go up the river without going around this point, and so it controls the, the, the traffic on the river, and there it is today. And, um, and so he meets with this spy, John Andre. Uh, let's get to that slide. And, and he agrees to betray West Point to the British, and he decides to do it on the very day George Washington is coming to inspect West Point. So it'll be a double whammy, right? They'll capture this big, important fort, and they'll capture our General George Washington. And so he meets with the spy, and they, he gives him the map of West Point, and um, some Americans show up and shoot at the British boat that was waiting in the Hudson River. And so the boat leaves. And so now the spy's like, oh, I don't have my way back. And so Benedict Arnold talks him into dressing as a civilian and walking back to the British. Well, the way the rules of warfare are, if you're wearing a uniform and you're captured, you, you get to stay alive and we'll use you for a prisoner exchange later. But if you're wearing a civilian uniform and you're caught as a spy, it's immediate death. 
And that's the rule of the warfare. So when he said, oh, just dressed as a civilian, and historians like, why did he do that? And they're like, well, he was keeping in touch with Benedict Arnold's wife, Peggy Shippen. And so they think there was a little bit of jealousy going on there. It's like, you're keeping in touch with my wife. You're the guy, you know. And um, anyway, so he has him walking back, dressed as a civilian, and he goes across the American lines, goes across the no man's land, and he's one bridge from going onto the British territory. And out of the woods comes some soldiers dressed as German Hessians. Now, the Hessians were hired by the King of England to fight Americans. And if Benedict Arnold would have kept his mouth shut, he would have been fine. But instead, he blurts out, it's finally good to see some men on our side. And these Hessians say, what do you mean our side? And he goes, well, you're Hessians. You're hired by the King of England. And they go, no, 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 we're Americans dressed as Hessians to try to find people that are disloyal. And he's like, you know what? I thought we could never tell nowadays. I mean, he tries to talk his way out of it. And they say, well, you know, we're just going to search you. They search him once. They search him twice. They're about to let him go. When they get the idea of making him take off his boot, and in the stocking of his boot is the map of West Point. They're like, uh, you didn't tell us about this map thing. Here's another picture of it, right? Here's this map. He's got his boot off, and uh, he tries to talk his way out of it. They say, well, let's, let's let you explain it to our commanding officer. And so they arrest him, and they're marching him back. And word of it gets back to Benedict Arnold at West Point, who just let him go. And uh, so he flees on a British ship waiting in the harbor called the Vulture. And, uh, and the next morning, George Washington shows up. Right? And instead of getting captured, right, he was going to have breakfast, but Benedict Arnold's gone. And the wife, Peggy Shippen, she like acts like she's gone insane. And she like yells at Washington and she's like pulling things and yelling at things and they like lock her in her room. And, you know, and after like a, a couple months, they, they put her on a ship and send her back to Benedict Arnold, but, um, who's now with the British. And so uh, General Nathaniel Green, an American, said, Treason of the blackest eye was yesterday discovered. General Arnold, who commanded at West Point, was about to give the American cause a deadly wound, if not fatal, stab. Happily, the treason had been timely discovered to prevent the fatal misfortune. The providential train of circumstances, which led to its discovery, affords the most convincing proof that the liberties of America are the object of divine protection. All right, so we're coming up on the 4th of July. This is sort of another side of it that we haven't really heard before. And so the president of Yale is Ezra Stiles, and he gives an address, a providential miracle at the last minute detected the treacherous scheme of traitor Benedict Arnold, which would have delivered the American army, including George Washington himself, into the hands of the enemy. And the Continental Congress is so happy, they have another day of Thanksgiving, and they said, remarkable interposition of his watchful providence in the rescuing the person of our commander-in-chief and army from imminent danger at the moment when treason was ripened for execution. It is therefore recommended that a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to confess our unworthiness and to offer fervent supplications to the God of all grace to cause the knowledge of Christianity to spread over all the earth. I just think it's interesting. Here they are thanking God George Washington wasn't captured, thanking God that West Point wasn't captured. Oh, and we're going to thank God that the knowledge of Christianity spreads over all the earth. <laughs> so these were Christian men and women fighting. 
And then another, we're getting close to the end of the revolution. It's called the Battle of Cowpens in South Carolina. Have some cows, put them in pens, it's called cowpens. And um, so the uh, British have a 26-year-old Colonel Tarleton, and he's nicknamed the Butcher because at the Battle of Waxhaw, you had 300 Americans surrendering, and he orders his men to pull out their sabers and hack them to death while they're surrendering. <laughs> and so um, the, uh, if you saw the movie The Patriot with Mel Gibson, right, it has this Colonel Tarleton in there, and he's like this killer guy. And, um, and so you have the American army, and the general is Nathaniel Green, and the uh, Battle of Cowpens, the uh, Colonel Tarleton, this young 26-year-old guy with his dragoons, that's what they would call the cavalry. They were called light cavalry because they didn't carry much supplies and they had these fast horses and they're riding 24 hours nonstop to try to catch this General Daniel Morgan. And Daniel Morgan has an entire army with wagons and he can't move very fast. And so he knows that their British are closing in and he decides, well, we're going to fight. I'm going to pick where. And he does something that's very important. He picks a place to have the battle right in front of a river. Now, you never want to fight in front of a river because if you're losing, it makes it really hard to run away. <laughs> but there was like a little slight dip in the land and um, he uh, had two groups of men. One are the militia and these are guys just off the farm and they're sharpshooters and they're known for shooting a couple times and running away. And then the second group are the Continental soldiers that had been in lots of battles. They're courageous. They will not run away. And so as the battle is heating up, the Redcoats, the British, are charging with this Colonel Tarleton. And the um, Blue, the uh, militia, fire once, fire twice, and they run away. And the Continental soldiers act like they're going to run away. But then at the last minute, they stop, they turn on their heels, they lower their, their guns, boom, and they shoot 100 British dragoons dead. And then the ones that ran away, it was planned. They just run, run around and attack the British from the other side. 800 of the British throw down their weapons and surrender. And this Colonel Tarleton rides off. And when word gets to Lord Cornwallis that, you know, 800 of his men and were captured and 100 killed, Cornwallis was leaning on his sword. He leaned so hard, the sword snapped in half. And he was furious at this Tarleton, so he decides he's going to chase after the Americans. And so he chases the Americans, and uh, the Americans are running away. They're joined by this another American general, Nathaniel Green, and they're heading toward the Catawba River. The Americans cross. Before the British can cross, there is a flash flood. The river rises over its banks, and the British are delayed a couple days. Well, they finally cross, and now they're chasing. There's the Redcoats, the British, and there's the Americans. They get to the Yadkin River in North Carolina. The Americans cross. The British show up. Another flash flood. Rivers over its banks. The British are delayed again. And then it happens a third time at the Dan River. Here it says, Boyd's and Irwin's ferries to the west were used by Nathaniel Green in his passage of Dan River mid-February 1781 while Cornwallis was in close pursuit. So the Americans cross, the British show up, they're watching them get out the other side. But before the British can cross, another flash flood. 
right? And so here, the British commander Henry Clinton writes, here the royal army was again stopped by a sudden rise of the waters, which had only just fallen almost miraculously to let the enemy over, who could not else have eluded Lord Cornwallis's grasp, so close was he upon their rear. Right, three rivers in 10 days rise to stop the British. And um, so the Yale president, Ezra Stiles writes, should we not ascribe to a supreme energy, talking about God, the wise generalship displayed by General Green, leaving the roving Cornwallis to pursue his helter-skelter, ill-fated march into Virginia? And so Washington writes, we have abundant reasons to thank Providence for its many favorable interpositions in our behalf. It has at times been my only dependence for all other resources seem to have failed us. And then uh, Washington, uh, the British were chasing the Americans and leaving all their supplies behind so they could go fast. And then when they, uh, they lose, they, they don't have their supplies. And so now they, they're ordered to wait at Yorktown. And, um, and so that's when the French Navy finally shows up, blocks the British ships, and we win the war. And so uh, this is a quote from Chief Justice John Jay. He says, this glorious revolution is distinguished by so many marks of divine favor and interposition, and may I say miraculous, that when future ages shall read its history, they shall be tempted to consider a great part of it as fabulous, as ex exaggerated. It, will it not appear extraordinary that 13 colonies without funds, without disciplined troops, in the face of their enemies, unanimously determined to be free and undaunted by the power of Britain, referred their cause to the justice of the Almighty. And then Washington says, it will not be believed that such a force as Great Britain has employed for eight years in this country should be baffled in their plan of subjugating it by numbers infinitely less, composed of men oftentimes half-starved, always in rags, without pay, and experiencing at times every species of distress which human nature is capable of undergoing. The singular interposition of providence, Washington writes, in our feeble condition were such as could scarcely escape the, most attention, the, the attention of the most unobserving, while the perseverance of the armies of the United States through um, almost every possible suffering and discouragement for the space of eight long years was little short of a standing miracle. So George Washington called it a miracle that we got free. Then when they're writing the Constitution, Ben Franklin says, in the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us, amen, all of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. You know, we're, we're facing some serious times in our country, but we have to remind ourselves that we're birthed out of people trusting God and doing everything we can. You know, one of the names for the Holy Spirit is paraclete, which means helper. So in other words, we don't pray and put our feet up on the couch. We pray and we, and we go out and do everything we can, all right? And... Um, so Sam Adams, there are instances of an almost astonishing providence in our favor. Our success has staggered our enemies and almost given faith to infidels. 
so that we may truly say it is not our own arm which saved us. The hand of heaven appears to have led us on to be perhaps humble instruments and means in the great providential dispensation which is completing. And so the Treaty of Paris officially ends the revolution. Do you know the, the treaty begins in the name of the most holy and undivided trinity? The very treaty that gave America its independence starts in the name of the most holy and undivided trinity. It, having pleased divine providence to dispose the hearts of King George III by the grace of God, King of Great Britain, to forget all past misunderstandings, done this third day of September in the year of our Lord, 1783. All right? And um, Reagan said, in 1775, the Continental Congress proclaimed the first National Day of Prayer. In 1783, the Treaty of Paris officially ended the long, weary Revolutionary War during which a National Day of Prayer had been proclaimed every spring for eight years. And then in the 1840s, 1850s, you had a uh, congressman, James Meacham, and he writes, down to the revolution, every colony did sustain religion in some form. It was deemed peculiarly proper that the religion and liberty should be upheld by a free people. Had the people during the revolution had a suspicion of any attempt to war against Christianity, that revolution would have been strangled in its cradle. If you could go back and tell these guys, hey, you know what? This country that you're going to form, someday they're going to outlaw Jesus, and they're going to outlaw God in the schools, and they're going to outlaw... They probably would have said, oh, forget this. We'll, we'll stay with Britain. So we take the power of the king, and we break it into three branches. We separate it federal to state level, and then we tie up this federal Frankenstein with 10 handcuffs. In other words, we take the Tower of Babel and scatter it. We wanted to separate power as much as possible amongst the people. And... Uh, John Jay, Americans are the first people whom heaven has favored with an opportunity of choosing the forms of government under which they should live. All other constitutions have derived their existence from violence or accidental circumstances. Your lives, your liberty, your property will be at the disposal only of your creator and yourselves. If I were to pick one quote that shows what makes America great, it's this quote right here. Your lives, your liberty, your property are at the disposal of you and God. You get to decide what you want to do with your life. You get to decide where you want to live, what career you want to pursue, who you want to marry, what church you want to go to. You get to decide what clothes you want to wear, what food you want to eat. You, in a sense, are the king with, with a little K. You're the king of your life. And then all of us together are the king with a little K over the country. And we have the voluntary opportunity of submitting our lives to Jesus, the King of Kings, yes. right? So we're little kings with little Ks. It says that in the book of Revelation that he has made us kings and priests, right? But it's with a little K. But we have this voluntary opportunity of surrendering our lives to Jesus, the King of Kings. And um, And Reagan said, in this country of ours took place the greatest revolution that has ever taken place in the world's history. Every other revolution simply exchanged one set of rulers for another. Here, for the first time in all the thousands of years of man's relation to man, the Founding Fathers established the idea that you and I have within ourselves the God-given right and ability to determine our own destiny. So you get to determine your destiny. You get to do it, you and God, right? You and your Creator. A poet, Ralph Waldo Emerson, said, America appears like a last effort of divine providence for the human race. And so these are stories that we put together, miracles in American history. And um, there's, uh, there's more stories, but I'm, uh, have you had enough or you want a couple more? Well, let me uh, 
skip, I go through the Battle of Lake Erie, and um, I'm going to skip past a little bit of it. Uh, so the British controlled Lake Erie, and uh, this is sort of, what's that a picture of? There was a, Sir Walter Raleigh was down in South America looking for El Dorado, right, the city of gold. And he didn't find it, but instead he found a tar lake. And he said, this is more valuable than gold. Because the British would build ships. And, of course, the masts they got from Maine, those really tall masts, but the wooden hulls would get these barnacles on them. And these barnacles would like have little like worm you know, things that would go in and make the wood spongy. And then the barnacles would like stick out and be all crusty. And, and the boat would go through the water slower and slower and slower. But if you made your boat and you covered the hull with tar, the barnacles couldn't attach and these boats could go fast. And so this was a key to the British Navy being so powerful. And um, anyway... Uh, Lots of history, but I'm going to skip past this, some of these things because there's, uh, well, this is sort of interesting because, um, so the British uh, made the treaties with the Indians to scalp Americans again. Right? They did that during the revolution, but now this is the, uh, the War of 1812. And the, um, uh, the British go to the Indians and say, okay, we'll give you money if you give us scalps. And so they, the British make a treaty with Chief Tecumseh. And... Uh, Chief Tecumseh means shooting star. So in 1812, there was a shooting star. And these Indians are like, whoa, wow, there's a big shooting star. And then something else happens. Uh, there's an earthquake in New Madrid. And uh, the Mississippi River fl flows backwards for like a day. And, and so these Indians are like, this is pretty, you know, strange stuff. And um, uh, so it says, the greatest earthquake recorded in North America centered in this area, December 16th, 1811, February 7th, 1812, uh, 1,874 quakes felt at Louisville, uh, 250 miles away, tremors, Detroit, New Orleans, heard all over, you know. And um, anyway... Uh, so this Chief Tecumseh gets 5,000 of these Native Americans, right, the Indians, to join with the British. And they're going to fight uh, to try to take back uh, Detroit. And they have all these different battles, and they massacre different forts. And there's the, the British. Um, they, they capture Detroit. Uh, the 2,500 Americans surrender. And um, anyway, so the president is James Madison. And he has another day of prayer. Uh, we turn to Almighty Power. And, and um, so we'll, I'm skipping past some of these quotes just for the sake of time. And he talks about repentance. And um, so now we're up to Lake Erie. So the British controlled Detroit. They controlled Lake Erie. And they, uh, we don't even have a navy. Uh, we don't even have a port. And so there's this young guy, 28-year-old Captain Oliver Hazard Perry, and he has them build the ships on land, and they drag the ship across the sandbar into Lake Erie. Most of his crew are free blacks from Ohio, and he, um, uh, the, the lake had a, an algae bloom, and so um, they didn't have water, but then he finds this little island in 100 feet underground, it's fresh water, so they call it Perry's Luck. And... Um, 
And so the, the British have their ships there. There's Detroit, and um, Perry is going to confront them. But the, uh, the British, um, Barclay, have the commander. He's invited to dinner in Detroit. And so he takes his Navy away, and that allows us to pull the boats in without the British knowing about it. And um, the British have five schooners and brigs and sloops. And um, let's see here. Uh, there's the algae bloom. There's the fresh water. There's the cave where they found it. And um, so this British have a commander, Barclay. He was fighting, fighting Napoleon, had his arm blown off. And the, there's the French, and then there's the British. And so the British... Navy is confronting the Americans, and the president is James Madison, and he has another day of prayer, um, seeking his merciful forgiveness. And, and so James Madison sets a day for the National Day of Prayer for September uh, 10th, September 9th, and um, there, September 9th of 1813. And so what happens September 10th, 1813, is the Battle of Lake Erie. And so you have the British have long-range cannons, and they're splintering the American flagship uh, to pieces. And um, uh, it looks like the, wars, the battle's going to be over. Um, but then the wind changes directions, and uh, Perry gets off his flagship and gets on the second ship called the Niagara. Well, the British ships have to now turn around because the wind changed directions. And uh, they end up getting their sails entangled, right? you got these big ships, and their wind changes, and they're turning, and they turn the wrong way, and they get their sails entangled. And they're, like, trying to untangle them. And so Oliver Hazard Perry sails his uh, Niagara, and he just de demolishes the British ships just within 15 minutes. And uh, there, there's a Niagara. Boom, 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 right? And, um, and then 15 minutes later... Uh, the, uh, and he, he ran out of wicks to light the cannons, and so he would have his pistol with no bullet in it but just the gunpowder, and he would shoot it at the cannon, and it would light the cannon, and it would explode on the British, and um, the smoke clears, and he had disabled the entire British squadron, and so the British surrender, and he says, the prayers of my wife are answered, and he writes to the Secretary of Navy, it has pleased the Almighty to give the arms of the United States a signal victory over their enemies on this lake. The British squadron, consisting of two ships, two brigs, one schooner, one sloop, have this moment surrendered to the force of my command after a sharp conflict. Uh, James Madison, the president, has another day of uh, prayer on Lake Erie. Squadron under command of Captain Perry, having met the British squadron of superior force, a sanguinary, bloody conflict ended in the capture of the whole. And so now we're not done yet. One more battle. Um, and uh, so the British have, uh, let's see here, they invade Washington, D.C. And this time the Americans just run away. So the British just walk right into our capital. And Dolly Madison was going to have dinner, and she has him hurry up, take the painting of George Washington off the mantle of the fireplace, and she rolls it up and the, rides out of town on a carriage. The British come in. They go into the White House. They see the table set. And then the British Admiral decides to sit down and eat dinner. And then he sets the, the White House on fire. And then he goes to the Capitol and um, goes into where the congressmen were sitting, but they all ran away. And he goes to the podium and says, who votes to burn the American Capitol? They all say, I, and they burn our Capitol. And uh, 
then he burns the treasury and the Library of Congress attacks the Navy Yard and there's our capital going up in flames. And um, suddenly dark clouds roll in and wind and thunder grow to a frightening roar. Lightning begins striking at the British troops. Uh, roofs are knocked off, chimneys are knocked off on the British. Uh, even British cannons are lifted off the ground like with tornado winds and thrown yards away. And um, the book Washington Weather recorded British Admiral George um, uh, Cockburn exclaiming to a lady, great God, madame, is this the kind of storm to which you are accustomed to in this infernal country? <laughs> to which the lady replied, no, sir, this is a special interposition of providence to drive our enemies from our city. And uh, so the, the rains come and extinguish the fires. The British have to leave, and several of their ships were blown ashore. And um, then a British historian writes, more British soldiers were killed by this stroke of nature than from all the firearms the American troops had mustered in the feeble defense of their city. Right? And so this is a miracle. James Madison writes, the enemy by a sudden incursion succeeded in invading the capital of the nation during their possession, though for a single day only they wantonly destroyed public edifices. Independence is now to be maintained with the strength and resources which heaven has blessed. And um, two houses of the national legislature expressed that in the present time of public calamity and war, a day may be recommended to the people of the United States as a day of public humiliation, fasting, and prayer to Almighty God. And um, there's, there's more there, but I'm going to uh, uh, pause and um, so you can get, read it in the book. But at the end of my um, uh, presentation, i got lots and lots of slides. If you can skip forward, uh, Mindy, I think, uh, see if I have one at the very, like the last six slides where it has a picture of the Hubble Space Telescope and, um, and the stars. And uh, hopefully that's there somewhere. Um, the... Um, so we talked about America being unique in world history. But I like, you, you can't help but say, okay, this affected this, affected this. But what, what affected it in the beginning? What, what was the very beginning? And looking at all of history. And um, it, it's a, it would be at the very end, end of the file, but it's a picture of the, the, the space, the Hubble Space Telescope. And uh, World War II and the Battle of the Bulge, and they had a day of prayer, and then they even had the... You know, Apollo 13, but uh, I don't know. Maybe I don't have it on there. Is it at the very, very end of the file? Uh, like last six, sli six slides from the end. And um, you'd be a picture of the stars in the space shuttle or the, the Hubble t telescope. Um, well, while she's doing that. Um, so the question was... Um, why did God make us? So America is an experiment of, instead of doing what the government tells you out of fear, you have freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of choice. And one of the things that that was important was freedom of religion. And the founders realized that, you know what? Your worship of God is only pleasing to God if it's freely given. If you're going someplace and you say you're believing something simply because you don't want the government to take you in the back and burn you at the stake, you're doing it out of fear. You're not doing it out of love, and that's not pleasing to God. So if we remove all the penalties and the benefits of believing or not believing, it's just an appeal to your heart. And then you can make a voluntary decision, and that is what love's all about. It's a voluntary decision. 
And so the idea is, why did God make us in the first place? And um, one thing that uh, God did was he made light. And light uh, is a photon. Uh, when an electron and a positron uh, collide, they annihilate themselves and create a, uh, a photon, which is a wave of power. Sort of like if you were to jump into a swimming pool, there's not a part of you that leaves you and goes and hits the beach ball and knocks it out. But the power of you going in is transferred to this wave, and then it hits the beach ball and knocks it out. And so when this electron and positron hit, it creates a wave, and that's called a photon. And it's a perpendicular wave in the electromagnetic field. Um, that travels at 186,000 miles per second. Um, sounds complicated, and, and it is, but um, the idea is that God created light, and light travels at 186,000 miles per second. And Einstein's theory of relativity is if you could travel the speed of light, for you, time would stand still. And since God created light, he's faster than light, so for God, time effectively stands still. We'll never comprehend that, but there is a verse in the Bible that says a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. In other words, we're living in ultra slow motion compared to God, right? And um, why is that important? Because we get to make our little free will decisions, but we're moving slow, so slow, and God's outside of time. He can readjust every atom in the universe to make sure that his will is going to take place. So it's our limited free will in the context of his unlimited sovereign will. Does that make sense? And um, the idea is, uh, you know, you have a GPS on your phone, and uh, you make a wrong turn, it recalculates. What if the guy in the car next to you is making a wrong turn? It recalculates. What if everybody in the world is making wrong turns and it's recalculating? All at the same time, right? And so you, God's outside of time. And so we make our good decisions, we make our bad decisions, and God can readjust every atom in the universe because he's outside of time before time, he allows time to move to the next micro frame, so to speak. So again, our limited free will in the context of his sovereign will. And um, do I not have the, the space shuttle picture in there? No, okay. Um, well, I'll, I'll use a word uh, illustration for it. And... Um, uh, the, uh, it's not there by the, um, like a couple slides from the end or uh, where there's like the, what do you call it? Nixon when the Apollo 13 blew up. Um, all right. Is there any slide that has stars on it? <laughs> I've got a couple different presentations and I, my wife calls me an absent-minded professor, so I apologize for, um, so the, um, the idea is we're, America is an experiment of people having free will freedoms. Well, let's look at all of creation. And in 2003, they focused the powerful Hubble telescope on a spot in the sky where there was nothing, which is sort of hard to find because if you've ever been out like in the Mount Rocky Mountains where there's no lights from the city, you see all the Milky Way, and there's like gazillions of stars, but they found a spot where there was nothing, and they focused the Hubble telescope on it for 11 days. When they developed the images in that little spot where there was nothing was 10,000 galaxies with hundreds of billions of stars in each galaxy. It's called the Hubble Ultra Deep Space Field. It's the furthest picture ever taken away from planet Earth, and it's... Um, 
uh, and it revolutionized uh, astronomers' view of the universe. And, and then they began to look in other directions where they thought was nothing, and they would leave the aperture open, you know, for weeks, and they would see. And so they now estimate that the observable universe is 93 billion light years across, and get this, still expanding at the speed of light. And light travels in the waves, like I mentioned, and blue's the shortest wave, and red is the longest wave. So they saw the red shift, which means you're seeing light moving away from us. So these galaxies are moving away from us. And um, the, uh, the largest star they found so far is Stevenson 2-18. It's a super gas giant. It's so large, if you were to place it in our solar system, it would engulf the orbit of Saturn, the sixth planet from the sun. We're the third planet from the sun. Could you imagine one single star that enormous? And God made it all, and he made you. Why would he make you? What could you possibly offer a being that is that unlimited in power? Nothing, except maybe something. What's a galaxy anyway? It's a bunch of rocks. Hot rocks, cold rocks, vaporized rocks. A rock cannot love you. So at some time in eternity past, it's like God said, been there, done that. I can make everything. I would really like someone in my image that could love me. Now it gets interesting because love by definition must be voluntary. The moment it's forced, it evaporates. If God were to force you to love him in any way, he himself would know he's forcing you to love him and he would know your response is not a love response because he forced you to love him. So he'll never force you. God doesn't need your love. He's not incomplete, and your love somehow completes him. He doesn't need your love, but he wants it. Parents don't need the love of their children, but they want it. And the more you love someone, the more you want that someone to love you back. God loves you infinitely. He has an infinite desire for you to love him back. But he'll never force you to love him back because the moment he would force you to love him back, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be love. And you're made in God's image. Well, what's the most important thing in your life? Well, somewhere at the top of the list, it's, it's loving and being loved. Right? People commit suicide if they think, oh, nobody cares about me. Nobody loves me, right? Being, loving and being loved is a big deal to us. And if we're made in God's image, could it be that loving and being loved is a big deal to God? And he loves everything he created. But the question is, could what he created love him back? So all of the inanimate things he created, right, stars and planets and plants, and they just follow the programming that's in their, you know, laws of nature and laws of optics and laws of gravity and laws of planetary motion. And, and then even animals follow instinct, right? I, uh, I looked up the word angel in the King James Bible. It appears 289 times, never once, does it use the word love to describe an angel's relationship with God? The word angel means messenger. And they deliver God's messages to the prophets, to Daniel and Ezekiel, to Mary. They, they um, uh, smite God's enemies, like they're delivering the judgments in Egypt. And, you know, Jehoshaphat, they kill 180,000 of the Assyrians. And, and they're heavenly witnesses. Jesus says, I'll confess you before the angels. And they rejoice when a sinner converts. And they praise God and they worship God. But the word love is not used in any verse in the Bible to describe their relationship with God. 
They are not made in God's image, and Jesus did not die on the cross for angels. They are, um, angels cannot forgive. And uh, they're mighty beings. They're powerful beings, but they were made for a purpose. You know, a king can have a castle, and he has mighty soldiers and really intelligent staff, but then he has children. And, uh, and so what purpose were, were we made for? We're not mighty. We're not powerful. We're not very smart. Why would he make us? Well, guess what? Guess what? The word love is used all throughout the Bible to describe men and women's relationship with God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Psalms 91, because he said his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. Jesus rose from the dead and said, Peter, do you love me? We are beings created with the ability to love God back. But for love, to be love, it must be voluntary, so he will never force us to love it back. There's a second thing. God has to hide himself behind his creation. Because if he ever revealed himself to you in all of his universe creating omnipotent power brighter than a trillion trillion suns, your response, if you didn't melt, would be like the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, I fell at his feet as dead. It would be instantaneous. Or like Ezekiel, I sat astonished for seven days. I mean, it would just overwhelm your senses. And God's like, I can do involuntary response all, all eternity long. He is completely awesome. He is all-powerful. He says, I can do that involuntary. I'm interested in this voluntary response, this love response. And so he has to hide himself. People say, if God's real, why doesn't he show himself? Because the moment he shows himself, your free will's gone. <laughs> in the presence of all power and all love and all beauty, right? It's going to be an involuntary response. And, you know, and the same hiding of himself that allows us an opportunity to use our free will necessitates that we have faith. The same two sides, right? I wish I could see the answer, then I wouldn't need faith. Yeah, but if she shows himself, you wouldn't have a free will anymore. I was trying to think of a way of explaining it. Imagine if a billionaire has a son who goes to college and he flies in on his private jet, drives up in his Lamborghini. He's got Rolex watch, fancy clothes. He's going to have every girl on campus wanting to meet him. But if he lays all that aside and drives up in a clunker, and he's got holes in his jeans, all the uppity girls are going to ignore him. But then there's a girl that likes to study with him in the library, and they eat together in the cafeteria, and they become friends. And she takes heat from the clique for hanging around this nobody guy. But she believes in him. They fall in love. They get engaged. And then one day he says, I want to take you back to meet my dad. And they're like driving up to this castle mansion. And the girl's like, whoa, you didn't tell me about all this. He knows that she loves him for him, not because of all of his stuff. If Jesus would have come down in his glory, you'd have every political ladder climber saying, I love you when they really didn't. It says in Isaiah 53 that there was nothing in his countenance that would make us want to desire him, right, regarding the Messiah. So he only wants those that love him for him. So he creates us as free will beings with the ability to love God. He hides himself so that we have the opportunity to love God. But then there's a third thing. He's just, and he cannot help it, which means he has to judge every sin. 
If God does not judge a sin, by default, he would be giving consent to the sin. It's called the rule of tacit admission. And it's in a wedding ceremony, right? The pastor says, okay, if you're silent, you're giving consent to the wedding vow. Speak now or forever hold your peace. If you're holding your peace and you're silent, your silence is giving consent. If there are sins and God is silent not judging the sin, by default, his silence would be giving consent to the sin. And if God gives consent to one sin, one time, he denies his just nature. He denies himself. He ungods himself. He's kicked out of heaven. And he is not going to get kicked out of heaven. And he is not going to deny himself. And he is going to judge every sin. So he could never be loved back. Because if he creates free will beings with the ability to love him, hides himself so that we have the opportunity to love him. But if we step out of line one time, he has to judge us. Because if he doesn't judge our sin by silence, he would be giving consent to the sin. And he would be denying himself. And he cannot deny himself. So he could never be loved back. Until he came up with a plan. He actually had the plan before he created the first electron. And the plan was his own son would become man. And only as a man could God hang on a cross and die for our sins. Charles Wesley wrote the hymn, Amazing love, how could it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? So God is completely just in that he judges every sin, but he's completely love in that he provided the lamb to take the judgment for the sin. Abraham and Isaac were going to the top of Mount Moriah, and Isaac says, Father, we have the wood for the sacrifice. We have the coals for the sacrifice, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, Son, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And it has a, a double meaning. One is, I trust God's going to have a ram up in the bush, but the other is God's going to provide himself and that's what happened. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten Son of God, in the plan of redemption that was hidden from ages. It was a hidden plan. It says if the princes of this world had known, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. The Apostle Paul called it the mystery of the gospel. In this hidden plan, Jesus became man, became the Lamb of God. And he took the judgment of a just Father God upon himself so that we wouldn't have to. And you think, okay, God's just. There's one Jesus. There's billions of us. We've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve eternal damnation. How can that balance? How, it, it has to balance if God is just one person. Jesus is divine. And he experienced judgment in a way that you and I will never comprehend. It says a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. Jesus experienced that day on the cross as if it was a thousand years. You know, I've read the book of Revelation lots of times, still trying to figure it out. But one thing seems clear. It's God that's pouring out the vials of judgment in the book of Revelation, right? Lamb breaks the seal, angel throws the censer, angel blows the trumpet. It's like, why is that? Well, that's the final, final judgment. God's a just God. He has to judge every sin he missed along the way. So you can't get 10,000 years into eternity and say, God, there was a sin way back then, and you didn't judge it, and you were silent. Were you giving consent to that sin? Is there a party that's unjust we didn't know about? Uh-uh. It says the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever, and the angels cry out, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. Nobody's going to question for the rest of eternity that God judged sin. But that's the final judgment. He won't do any more judging for the rest of eternity. 
But in that sense, Jesus had the book of Revelation judgment poured out on his head. He took the judgment for every sin that everybody would ever do upon himself on the cross, experienced it as if it was a thousand years. You know, I have a degree in accounting, so I like things that balance. You take an eternal being, Jesus, who is innocent, suffering for a finite, limited period of time. It's equal to all of us finite, limited beings who are guilty, suffering for an eternal period of time. Let me say that again. An eternal being who's innocent, suffering for a finite period of time, is equal to all of us finite beings who are guilty, suffering for an eternal period of time. Infinity times finite equals finite times infinity. An unlimited being suffering for a limited period of time is equal to all of us limited beings suffering for an unlimited period of time. Jesus literally suffered the equivalent of eternal damnation in all of our places. He's the only one who could have done it. And out of love for the Father and out of love for you and me, he became the Lamb and he took the, it says in Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to crush him. And then he rose from the dead to prove he was who he said he was. This way, you and I can approach this universe-creating, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-just God and not have to worry about being judged. Because all the judgment you and I deserve went on Jesus. The lamb is God's way to love you without having to judge you. It's his plan. He came up with it. He came up with it before the foundation of the world. So he could love you and you could love him back throughout all eternity and not have to worry about being judged because all the judgment you deserve went on the lamb and you're approaching him through the lamb. That's why we sing praise songs to Jesus, right? That's why we're called Christians. We got his name on our forehead. And then he fills you with the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit flows through you to share God's love with the lost and dying world. So instead of you doing good works, hoping to earn brownie points with God, you're already accepted by God through faith in the blood of the Lamb, Jesus. And it's the Holy Spirit doing the good works through you loving the unlovable, rescuing those unjustly sentenced to death, defending the defenseless, clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, right? There's nothing more exciting than letting the God of the universe love people through you. Matter of fact, people that their spiritual walk gets a little dry is because they're taken in and not, they're not given out, right? It's like stopped up. It's, you have to give out for they have that water flow, but there's nothing more exciting than letting God use you to love on people. So today, if you've not yet put all your faith in the Lamb, Jesus Christ, this is your day. That God, who is all-powerful and outside of time, arranged for you to be here today and to hear about his love, that he created you so that he could love you, and he really craves, he desires you to love him back, but he'll never force you. Because the moment he would force you, it wouldn't be a love response. And he paid for all your sins so you don't have to worry about hesitating coming into his presence. You just respond to his love. Today is your day. I'm going to turn it over to Pastor. God bless.